explain us a bit more about this kind of about the mechanisms of artificial scarcity? Yeah, so it's a really great question. And it would have been a question I wouldn't have had a, well, I hope it's a succinct answer to for a long time, um, because it was more of an intuition than sort of a, a cogent thought through uh, perspective. So the, the fundamental claim is that information is increasingly a central factor of production. And that's not a particularly radical thing to say. You get that in somebody like Peter Drucker says it in 1994, I believe, post-capitalist society. Uh, you get it uh, in Paul Romer, who became a very eminent economist. He wrote in 1990 something called endogenous growth theory. Now, until 1990, economists didn't actually view um, technological change as a variable in growth. And he said, well, this is this is patently absurd. This can't be right. Clearly, technological change, it's a factor in how we understand growth rates. And um, until then, really, economic growth had been understood through exogenous factors, that is to say, land, labor, capital, etc. Uh, and he said, actually, this is, a, this is a new thing and it's clearly a variable. And so the instructions for making a good are a variable, right? And we can, we can debate over the extent of that. Now, what Peter Drucker would say is that the instructions for making something over time, between sort of birth of industrial capitalism, let's say, Let's say the early 19th century. It really goes on steroids by the 1860s, 1870s with the Second Industrial Revolution. But the, the instructions for making something now are far more important. <clears throat> That's where far more value resides than in the 1870s. And the issue with that is, and so you're thinking, well, okay, that's great with regards to, say, music. We know what that means, right? The instructions are effectively a digitized informational copy of a track or an album or a film. Very easy to understand. Now, how does that apply to biology, healthcare? Well, if you look at, for instance, CRISPR-Cas9, it's a technology for genetic editing. There's a great anecdote I talk about in the book, a guy called David Ishii. He was a biohacker. He is a biohacker. And in 2017, he wanted, and he's also a dog breeder. And Dalmatians have a particular disposition to getting gout, right? And he worked out the single letter of DNA required to stop this from happening. He could have done it. Didn't require a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical R&D, you know, center to find out how to do it. He could have done it with his home lab, cost him tens of thousands of dollars. He writes to um, the relevant federal agency, the FDA. He says, I want to do this to stop um, my Dalmatians I breed getting gout, now, within a couple of weeks, the FDA release a press release uh, and they say that we will treat edited uh, genetic material the same as a pharmaceutical drug. That is to say it will be subject to patent. So what does that mean? We have at present thousands of biological conditions where just a single edited strand of DNA would be able to heal people. So think uh, Parkinson's, think Huntingdon's, think sickle cell anemia, hundreds of things like that. And if you look at the leading sort of science in regard to this thing called CRISPR-Cas9, it's nothing new. Genetic engineering is not new. What it's done is it basically means as a technique, you see such massively uh, falling costs that basically anybody can do it. You know, any university now can have what was five years ago, even, um, you know, an unparalleled biotech lab. And if just the sort of low hanging fruit of this is eliminating those thousands of uh, you know, single DNA strand conditions, single nucleotide rather, uh, uh, conditions, like I say, sickle cell anemia, Huntingdon's, um, Parkinson's. If it's just that, great. But the suspicion is it's probably a lot more than that. So for instance, we can start to build in 
resistance to a bunch of conditions. Now, people say, well, that's terrible. That's eugenics. That's genetic engineering. And this is why it needs to be subject to political control. On the one hand, yes, it is. On the other hand, it's no different to vaccinations. The difference being we're changing the sort of informational response in your body before you're born or in utero rather than when you're a small child or a newborn. So what does that mean? It means that all of a sudden information becomes an incredibly central part of medical healthcare, of what we presently think of as the pharmaceutical industry. And all of a sudden, pharmaceuticals become dematerialized in a very similar way to films and movies over the late 1990s, early 2000s. Now, the response, if you're a big pharmaceutical company, would have to be the same. You would have to impose scarcity. You don't want to all of a sudden eliminate Huntingdon's and Parkinson's and uh, sickle cell anemia, because all these people consume all these drugs to mitigate the symptoms of these things. So that that's the sort of that's the fundamental proposition is that market rationality. There's a great quote here. Actually, I've got the book open on this page for some reason. Uh, but Larry Summers and Bradford DeLong wrote this a month before Napster was taken down in August 2001. And they say the most basic condition for economic efficiency is that price equal marginal cost. With information goods, the social and marginal cost of distribution is close to zero. They go on to say, if information goods are to be distributed to their marginal cost of production, zero, they cannot be created and produced by entrepreneurial firms. If information goods are to be created and produced, companies must be able to anticipate selling their products to someone at a profit. Then they finally conclude what the solution is. Temporary monopoly power and profits are the reward needed to spur private enterprise. This is from Larry Summers, very much an establishment economist. Hmm. The right way to think about this complex set of issues is not clear, but it is clear that the competitive paradigm cannot be fully appropriate. We do not yet know what the right replacement paradigm will be. So there is basically an admission that as information becomes an increasingly um, valuable constitutive part of the overall commodity, you have to see an increase in monopoly, a turn to rents and so on. So like I say, we've seen that in the last 20 years with Napster and Netflix, with Hulu, with Amazon Prime. You're right, those are marginal parts of the economy. But that will extend ever further. That will go to, like I say, uh, food, to human biology, to energy, uh, eventually to labor. The price of labor will collapse as you see you know, huge improvements in machine learning, AI, robotics. And so all of a sudden, we have what could potentially be across the economy, not not maybe all of the economy, but huge pools of things that should be free or ultra low cost. And the metaphor here is if you come to my house and you say, look, can I have a cup of instant coffee? I give it to you. I don't think it's a big deal. Or if you say, can I have a lighter? And I give you the lighter and you don't give it back to me. It doesn't really matter. I can go and buy another lighter for 30p. Now, given these tendencies, that kind of mindset, that kind of culture, that kind of abundance should permeate quite a lot of human existence. I mean, you might say, well, maybe all of it, uh, but maybe not all of it. But, you know, certainly within the next several decades, there should be sort of big pools of things that we can treat like that. So healthcare, education, uh, probably food, housing, et cetera. Uh, we could talk about where that where that sits alongside a sort of historic project of social democracy. OK, ultimately, but, ultimately so, that sounds that probably sounds quite ambitious. But then the end point is obviously probably quite a qualitatively different kind of society to what we presently have. Okay, so I want to push you a bit more on this because you say um, it's not kind of it's not a technological determinism. Um, it's a politics associated with the project. But um, surely the point is that uh, what you're describing is simply the um, 
the dynamics of capitalism. So we will get more, uh, you know, we'll get AI, um, we'll get machines, we'll get more machines with um, that improve productivity dramatically. We'll get um, the possibility for um, manipulating our genome and all of these things. Um, but it will all be contained within a particular framework. And so there won't be any, um, these develop, technological developments of their own accord can't push us anywhere. Um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, this is the, I mean, and I imagine you talk about it in the book, but, you know, mm. this goes back to Keynes's claim from the 30s that already by now that we should be working, we would only need to work a few hours a week if it was, um, and we could still enjoy a life of leisure. And yep. the reason that we don't is that capitalism finds ways to perpetuate particular forms of social structure, the way um, wage labor and so on. So surely, I mean, these things won't, um, you're su- in what you were just saying, it sounded as if you're suggesting that the technology itself inevitably pushes in a particular direction. No, I'm saying that, for instance, there will be, there will have, to, there will, uh, what I will say is inevitable under capitalist dynamics is that inevitably, given these changes, there would, as I've said, under capitalism, if you're producing a good or service, you need to make a profit. So there would have to be a turn, as we saw with music, with film, towards rents, towards monopoly. And so that's what you know the economy will increasingly resemble. So this chap, David Issue, who wants to change the, 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 the genetic material of his dog, he wasn't allowed to do that. So what would that look like in the future? You know, you might have ultimately, like right now we have something very similar with patented pharmaceuticals, right? You saw it with retroviral drugs and, um, you know, the crisis of AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa in the 2000s. It's kind of been somewhat surmounted. You can imagine that, but really, you know, taken up a couple of notches with what these technologies can do. And so... I'm talking about in order to maintain profit, you see an imposition of artificial scarcity amid conditions of abundance. You know, another one could be renewable energy. It's an, this is an amazing statistic. Enough sun hits the Earth's surface in 90 minutes to meet human demand for an entire year. So we've always had a prodigious amount of energy coming to us through solar energy. We've just never known really or economically how to capture, store and distribute it. Mm. By the early 2020s, that will begin to change. And because solar or renewable technologies are getting, they're basically getting cheaper by double digit percentage points basically every year, have been since the 50s. Now, if that continues through the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, if you're a capitalist enterprise, it's very difficult to sell something which is getting permanently cheaper. And so that that's at odds with capitalist, the capitalist mode of production. Now, I'm not saying that blows up capitalism. Somebody like a John Holloway would say that, right? What I'm saying is there is uh, the conditions there for a potentially new kind of political project based on uh, technological changes which have to be met with uh, an accordant politics uh, and okay. that's not that's not inevitable actually things could you know things could get far worse than at present capitalism may actually be quite good i personally wouldn't like to see for instance uh, the chinese state get hold of an all-powerful ai um yeah. so there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack there but well, i, I want to come at the Sorry, Aaron, I just wanted to come at this from a slightly different angle and, and maybe even an opposed angle to, to the line of Phil's questioning, which is that maybe this technology doesn't emerge uh, precisely because the lack of uh, forceful working class movement to which will raise wages and make stuff like automation actually attractive to capital isn't currently happening. Uh, so actually, we end up with a very degenerate undynamic capitalism, which at the same time feels like it's speeding out of control. I mean, that's one of the paradoxes, I guess, of our age, that things feel like they're speeding out of control. There's new technology everywhere, and yet it's less innovative and less dynamic than it was a century ago. Uh, 